People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. I was bewildered. I didn't know what was going on. I'm wondering, why are you doing this? That's why I asked them about why all the aggression. Today we begin a series of shows about the early attempts to hold police accountable through media and personal accounts. A look at the consequences and fallout for the people who took a stand against police and the journalists who covered them before the uprising and the Department of Justice investigation. But it's also a series about how Baltimore police in the past had both the political power and the resources to construct a damning narrative to silence critics by using the criminal justice system to dominate the dialogue about what justice means. And how that abuse of power has had serious consequences for the community that the Baltimore Police Department purports to serve, and how it continues to define how the city is policed. All that coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So I wanted to begin this episode by asking Sean a question because I had an encounter recently at Belvedere Square, which is a place near my house where people go to get lunch and dinner. I saw um, there was a special event there with a band, and I saw Officer Porter from Freddie Gray. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I saw him walking around with a big smile on his face. Really? And I thought to myself, you know, how is it uh, that a police officer from one of the worst you know, episodes of brutality in the city's history could walk around and still be a police officer. I mean, does that stun you? That's a great question. I mean, does it stun me? Not. I don't know if anything stuns me right now. I guess what I mean is, like, does it seem peculiar to this city that somehow this man who, who literally caused the death of a person in custody, there's no question about that, and then, you know, threw the city into a tumult that, you know, we're still recovering from, can walk around and just be a cop again? I, I, I mean, the... And be clear, let's, you know, when we talk about the specifics of the trial, there was within one vote, one, right. one juror of him being convicted. Of misconduct, yes. Uh, um, Absolutely. Um, so there's that. And, and you're right. I mean, to literally change the trajectory of this city in April of 2015 and to be walking around fancy free does seem odd in, in, in uniform and walking around and, you know, seemed fully confident that. He, there would be no repercussions or no one would come up to him. You know, I, it's just hard for me to understand. And well, maybe he felt com- more comfortable in Belvedere <laughs> than he would <laughs> well, in North. And to note, that is a predominantly white um, enclave, I guess you right. could say, right? Is that right, the best way to call it? Right, smoked muscles and everything. Right. 
<laughs> Delicious food. Well, and so let me pivot from there because, you know, y- you've written tons of stories about poli- police brutality. And it has seemed in the past that no matter what kind of story you wrote, there were very few consequences. Is that a, a fair statement to say? I think it's an absolutely fair statement. And, and, and ultimately, it goes back to the power of police in Baltimore, the, po- the power of the union in Baltimore. Mm. Um, and uh, I think ultimately that's it. Yeah. You, did the police run roughshod over the city in half for generations. But there's one aspect of that, too, is that, um, you know, I know at the Examiner we were kind of on our own, and you at the Afro, other media outlets were not quick to pick up on police brutality stories. It was kind of a lone wolf kind of, <laughs> if that's a good metaphor for it. And well, and e- but I even have to be honest, as when I was a reporter for the Afro before I became editor, I mean, I got heat for mm-hmm. talking about zero tolerance. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I, there was some pressure put on me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be, you know, clear about that. So it, it, it was never an easy thing to talk about the police department in a negative way. Right. And so, Taya, you know, you, you've been a reporter. You've covered lots of things. You know, do you see, uh, you know, the power of policing in terms of being able to control the narrative, even in your position as a reporter, going back just three or four years or five years? Well, I think there has been a change in the way the police department can actually control the narrative. I think there has been a change there. And the reason why I say that is because after the uprising, after the death of Freddie Gray, there was an attention placed on the city. We were the focus of not just national attention, but international attention. For for about a week, Penn North was the center of the world, and we had cameras there. And because of a video, basically. Essentially because of a video that sh- that showed what happens on the streets of Baltimore every day. And that's something that Baltimore citizens tried to uh, point out, was that we have a Freddie Gray every day in this mm. city. And now that we're getting this attention for it, we need to bring to the forefront the fact that this has not only been going on for years, but it continues to go on. And we've seen that illustrated, for example, by the recent scandal with the Gun Trace Task Force, which shows that this sort of bad behavior on the part of cops, where these cops were accused of false imprisonment, extortion, theft, brutality, etc., etc., it's a sign that that police department now that's finally under this scrutiny, the people of Baltimore are saying, we're finally being heard. Our, our our pain is finally being seen for what it is. It's not being dismissed anymore. Well, Sean, you know, you, having written about a lot of cases and having spent the time to, to document this, how much did the ability of people, just residents, to document with their own cameras change the dialogue in terms of police brutality? Well, I think that's changed the narrative across the country, obviously. But um, here in Baltimore, I mean, you can't, you can't, there's, I, I in the last three years. You haven't had any sort of controversial case involving police without having a video. someone there with a camera saying, right. um, I got, think about the, the guy who got beat up by the cop recently. Yeah, we were just in Taya covered that. Right, yeah. Deshaun East, McGreer. Deshaun McGreer. In, in East yeah. Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, all his buddies had their, their phones out <laughs> saying, I got this, yo, don't worry about it. I got <laughs> it. I got it. I got it. I got all of this. Right, because you, you know? said, you literally said, don't worry. Right, I got all of this. We got, yeah. I got it. And, and they did have it. <laughs> and they right. did. And, like they did. And, 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 and just so you can, because someone's a veteran of this, he was off the force within 48 hours. That's never, unprecedented, un- right? Never happened. Never happened. Never. Never happened before. Absolutely. Um, uh, by, by, by 24 hours, he was suspended. 20, mm-hmm. Right. 24 hours later, he was out. He was gone. 
and never happened. Right. I it's, mean, those guys. So, would, that, so that is a testimony to what transpired. The power of what happened with Freddie Gray mm-hmm. and Marilyn Mosby doing what she did. Because the old playbook used to be ride it out. Yeah. But just they, string it out. Okay, he's and we could write our story. Right. And, he's and, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. He's 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 suspended with pay. And, and so basically right. on vacation. And eventually right. the Afro and the Baltimore Examiner is going to move on. Yeah, they'll move on to other stuff. They don't and have, people forget right. about it. But now, for whatever reason, well, we know what the reason. It's just so immediate. You right. know? I mean, I mean pe- when you covered that story, you, you saw the immediacy. Absolutely. I mean, people are finally becoming credible witnesses to the crimes committed against them. When we went over to Rosa Monument Street, we spoke to the people who saw this young man get punched in the face, saw him fall to the ground and hit his head against a pe- set of marble steps and see his see him bleed out and lose teeth everyone witnessed this if this had happened even five years ago like as Sean yeah. said suspended without pay which mm-hmm. is basically a vacation and and essentially the suspended media, with pay uh, I'm sorry thank yeah. you suspended with pay a vacation and then eventually the media storm for the few media organizations that would the actually few, cover right. it would eventually move on but now because of the immediacy of social media the immediacy of everyone having essentially a body camera in their pocket for these police officers uh, the, the community is finally being believed when they stand up and say we're being abused we're being brutalized crimes are being committed against us well Sean let me ask you a question it's kind of profound, and I, I hate to drop this on you, but um, are the police finally losing their grip on the narrative that they've been able to use against the city and sort of, you know, um, in a way, blunt its political efficacy by saying Baltimore is just a big criminal cesspool? Are they losing the upper hand finally? I don't know. I, I, I was thinking the other day, though, about, the, the you know, Baltimore, the, the narrative of Baltimore being a criminal cesspool. Um, it feels like to me when I, I was I was thinking about the um, the indictments of the um, the young cats the the assassins who just right. got indicted right, on yeah. trial right now yeah um, uh, and 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 just thinking about some of the depravity that has been kind of uh, tested during yeah the, the seven year old girl shot in the back of the car yeah all of that um, and it it almost feels like that the when you talk about a criminal cesspool. I think about the examples of the Baltimore Police Department itself, and it's almost as if they're competing with each other mm. right, for yeah. indignity, for for depravity, for inhumanity. And it's almost it, as bad as the police get, the criminals get worse, or as bad as the criminals get, the police get. I, I mean, it's almost yeah. like the the discernment, the line between the two is be, is blurring more and more. And I think like. nothing exemplifies that, you know, sort of that situation more than than with Detective Souter, you know, because we just spoke to Kevin Davis, and we'll be writing about this for the Afro, who said, you, who wouldn't rule out a criminal conspiracy in the police department. Now, most cities, that would be unthinkable. Think about that. Yeah. Right. This is the former <laughs> commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department, and he's basically saying, hey, hey anything's it, possible. It, it, it could it, happen. And, right. you know, and, and, and he was also talking about the FBI didn't trust him, and, you know, so... We have a special situation here, but so coming. Go ahead, Chong. Well, I, t- 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 I, yeah. I just had a conversation Absolutely. the other day uh, uh, with a, with a, a guy um, who we, I was talking about my book, and 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 he and and he had read it, and he said, which is called Baltimore after Freddie Gray: Real Stories from One of America's Great Imperiled Cities, um, and uh, he. He was basically saying, well, Baltimore, he was saying it very matter-of-factly. It was a gentleman at City Hall. He said it very matter-of-factly, Baltimore has to go the way of Camden, New Jersey. Mm. Um, He says there's no other way. 
Is there? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I've written about that. We know about the, right. that. Um, and it seems inevitable. You know, It what, seems like we're at the point of no return. What's really interesting about that is a lot of people, at first when that idea came out with Delegate Blali and stuff, there was this, oh, that's crazy. But right. I've heard more and more people saying, you know what? We're getting to that point. People I wouldn't expect. What else are we, what, what else has to happen? But is that possible with the power of the Fraternal Order Police that we could well, actually disband well, this police well, department? Well, it has to be. Well, that, well, that's the whole point. The point is it, it could not, it cannot happen if we conduct business as usual. It's going right. to take a total deconstruction of the, the, the police department's infrastructure, and that means the, the, the union as well. Because the, the, in Camden, they, they broke the union. They stripped it down, and they, they, aren't, they, they don't have a union. They don't have a union. Right. And they, yeah. So the, it's, it's the, the, the Baltimore Police Department, if that were to, ha- were to happen, would, would not look anything like it does right now. Well, coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation, we're going to talk about one of the first times a video became central to a case and also the fallout, how the police department enforced its power and hit back on the people who exposed what had happened. And that's all coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So this is a complex story and made even more tricky because I have a pretty big role in it. And for that reason, I'm going to have Taya, along with my guest, help me tell it. Thanks, Stephen. So before we get started, it's important to set the stage, so to speak, for what Baltimore was like in 2006 when the story we are about to tell unfolded. At that moment in time, I was the senior investigative reporter for the Baltimore Examiner. For those who don't remember, The Examiner was a totally new newspaper in 2006, launched by billionaire Philip Anschutz. And we were kind of the new kids on the block, so to speak. We printed 250,000 copies a day, and we required to write two stories for every issue. And also important, our staff was relatively young and inexperienced. It was small for a paper to put out five separate editions for each of Baltimore's surrounding counties. At the same time the paper was launched, Baltimore had a young Democrat mayor who had his sights on higher office. His name is Martin O'Malley, and he had been elected in 1999 with the promise to lower the city's homicide rate. To do so, he embarked on a policy called Zero Tolerance, a police strategy developed in New York that had been credited with a drop in crime but took on a much different form in Baltimore. The idea was based upon a theory called broken windows, that a crime-riddled neighborhood was like a broken building. Fix the windows, meaning petty crimes, and the rest of the neighborhood will be improved. But what was intended to be a targeted strategy became an all-out assault on the city's black population. From the early aughts to 2009, Tens of thousands of poor African-Americans were arrested for petty crimes like drinking a beer on a stoop or spitting on a sidewalk. Interestingly, when I started working for the Examiner, the policy had not received much attention from the media. In general, O'Malley's popularity and his seemingly bright future as a possible presidential candidate appeared to give him and his policy a free pass. Which is where the story of the arrest of Glenn Curry, captured on video, begins. I've been writing about a series of bizarre arrests, a couple who was lost on the way home from a baseball game and was apparently arrested for asking directions, 
and a pastor who was arrested on the way to church, and his wife left to fend for herself on a dangerous West Baltimore corner. But in those cases, police always had the upper hand, because the arrests and the circumstances surrounding them was always a citizen's word against a cop. And in 2006, the cop always won. But the story of the arrest of Glenn Curry, a North Baltimore resident, changed that dynamic in a big way. That's because his arrest was caught on tape. I was uh, exiting my home, which I lived on Pennsylvania and Mosier. I was going to the car to put a shopping bag in the back of the car. Police pulls up on the curb, asked me, uh, who are, no, where you coming from? I said, out the house. Uh, I think his next word were, well, I don't recognize you around here. And I think I got a little sarcastic. I said, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because that area is a drug area. And so after that, he kind of went wild. He grabbed my arm, pulled me back, and said, where your ID? I said, it's in the house. I'll go get it for you. He let me go. And then I turned around and said, why all the aggression? And he grabbed me back, handcuffed me, threw me on the car, hit me in my jaw, threw me backwards, landed on the pavement, all the way to the wall, mind you. The pavement is approximately 12 feet from the street. I landed all the way back to the wall. He grabbed my legs, dragged me back to the pavement, set me down, slapped me on my head again, and claimed I had drugs and I was trespassing and I assaulted and resisted arrest. I was bewildered. I didn't know what was going on. I'm wondering, why are you doing this? That's why I asked him about why all the aggression? Because I'm, I'm acting normal. He went by all the people that do what they do and I know they know them. So I was really confused. Why would he pick me out of everybody? What kind of, um, what happened to you, you know, in terms of physically from what happened? How did it, did it cause pain or what happened? Yeah, uh, my wrist was damaged from the handcuffs was tight. Uh, I skinned all the skin off my arm to the flesh, my shoulder and my right arm. And the back of my head hit the curb, I mean the pavement. So I was kind of disoriented. So now I really don't know what's going on. I'm kind of woozy and... I know this police is trying to assault me. For what, I don't know. And his partner is looking at me, and I'm looking at him kind of for assistance, like, hey, why don't you stop this? And nobody came to my aid, so I just sat there and tried to cooperate. So what happened after the assault? What what did they do to you after that? Well, I sat on the curb for a minute, and they talked amongst themselves about what I had the slightest idea. Then they put me in the car, rolled me around uh, to Division Street, Drew Hill Avenue, quite a few, they rolled me around for about 20 minutes and then had me off to a cruiser with about four or five other people in the cruiser. So did you end up in Central Booking? I ended up in Central Booking and when they read the report, they released me. They, they said, well, we don't see any violations here. And it was what they call a walkthrough. I came right out. And did the officers accuse you of having drugs, or what did they accuse you? They accused me of having drugs and said I was in the process of trying to get rid of them. 
with cuffs on. And that was not true? Absolutely not. So you didn't have any drugs? No. And so how did you feel about that? Well, I just thought that went with the territory. I knew that if they was doing all of this, that they would try to charge me with something that was illegal. They would almost have to to justify what they was doing to me. Curry's arrest and what happened to him might have been just another statistic. He would have been carted to central booking, and with the police officer's word against his, he would have gotten a criminal record and time in jail. But as the first Baltimore reporter to write about the story, there was something else happening that day that neither the officers or Glenn Curry knew about. A story that starts with his cousin Fred Curry, who just happened to be hanging out on a nearby corner. I remember it was it was a summer day. It was hot. It was like 90-something degrees. And I was out. I had a camcorder, a little Palm Hill camcorder for me and my homeboys. And we would, it, was, it was summertime, so we was recording, you know, the dirt bikes, uh, the beautiful ladies, because they was out in the short shorts. Um, and I just was recording, just just nothing in particular, you know what I mean? A couple police incidents prior to that was was on, the, I think it was a house raid. And I was, because of, uh, my uncle lived right there on Pennsylvania Mosier. And I was a block away on Pennsylvania, I mean, not Pennsylvania, on Mosier and Argo with my friend, because I'm from down in that neighborhood. So I, mean, I was out there with my homeboys and beautiful summer day. And... I was just recording, just recording everything. Like, if if you was to get the copy of the actual video prior to the incident with my uncle, you would see all kinds of stuff. Dirt bike riding up and down the street, willies, um, house raid, police house raiding somebody's house, uh, women, different varieties of undress and, and, and short shorts. Be, all kinds of stuff it was on the video, you know what I mean? Well, I actually I didn't know it was my uncle. Um, I was standing on the corner, like I was, like I said, I was on Moja and Argo, which is a block away. It's a Moja Argo, then it's Moja and Pennsylvania, so it's a block away. So I'm standing there talking to like three of my friends, and I hear the commotion with my uncle and the police officer. They was arguing. You know, I, you can hear him, you know, it was a block away. You can hear them yelling back and forth to each other. So one of my homeboys, he tapped me, like, Fred, 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 that's your uncle. So I said, damn, that is my uncle. <laughs> so uh, I had a camcorder in my hand, so I just put the camcorder up, and as soon as I put it up, he popped him. <laughs> so me being, I mean, this, this is my uncle, you know what I mean? So me... The, me and my uncle, I'm recording, but I'm I'm walking toward towards it. So as I'm walking, record towards them, recording it. Um, by this time, he threw him on the ground, and I'm like, I'm stunned, but I'm like, I'm I ain't really thinking like I'm glad I got it on video, but um, I'm recording it. And when I walk up to him, by this time, he he, he got him in handcuffs. So like I said, it's a block away. He got him in handcuffs. You know what I mean? So I so I. I said something to the, it's like three of them. It was like three police, if I ain't mistaken. So I said, man, it's my uncle. It's my uncle you just hit. You know what I mean? So he tell me step back. One of them was saying, step back, step back. So my uncle's still arguing with him. He handcuffs. 
asked why you hit me and I mean this and that. So I'm like, man, you just hit my uncle. I said, don't even worry about it. I got it on video. So when I said that, he looked at me. So I remember one of them was a sergeant. One of them was a sergeant. So he was like, you got it on video. I said, yeah, I recorded everything. So um, they told me to get away or they going to lock me up. So I backed up. So they was, by this time, I think another police car pulled up or something. So I ain't want to get locked up. So I went and, I, I went and got in my truck. So when I got in my truck, by this time, they was pulling off. So I pulled off right behind them. So I was I followed them for like two blocks. But it was two police cars. It was the one with my uncle and it was another one. And after a couple blocks, you know, I went on. Then I thought about it. I said, man, what can I? So I looked at the video to make sure that I had everything on the video. So, I don't know what made me, did I call you that night? I think I called Sam. Maybe called him. I called Sam, which is my cousin. He's well, a he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And Sam told me to call Granville. Why did you want to call a lawyer? Because I had it on video. I, was, I, once I, I think I showed it to my mother or somebody. I showed it to my mother, and then we found out that they actually locked Glenn up and gave him a charge. Punching somebody or, or hitting somebody is, is normal practice and back then in Baltimore too. So this was nothing new under the sun. But then on top of that, they gave my uncle a charge. So I think my mother or somebody said, yeah, they, they Glenn locked up. They gave him a charge on top of that. So I think that's when I called Sam. So armed with the video and having witnessed what he saw as the mistreatment of his cousin, Fred Curry called attorney Granville Templeton and he called Stephen. Yeah, so the family came to me, and they had the video, and um, I watched the video in the office, and I and I just I just thought it was terrifying what happened to to Glenn, um, and so describe what you saw in that video. The first well, I saw there were a few things that happened. They should there was there were taping officers that day in the neighborhood, and and Glenn's um, memories is really excellent. There was another situation where the officer grabbed a guy, another guy grabbed his um, potato chip bag, threw it down, Sorry. and um, there was no probable cause, no articulable suspicion from what I saw for the, for that um, encounter. Then the situation with um, with Glenn when they grabbed him and he was handcuffed, really. He was handcuffed at the time. Um, I saw Officer Shetterly punch him in the face, in the jaw, while he was leaned against a police car. Um, after he did that, he used two hands and threw Mr. Curry backwards. So he's on the street at this point, and there's a curb and a sidewalk. And so he, if you push someone with, with the back of their heels to, you know, a curb mm-hmm. <laughs> with full force, and it seems like he was probably double the weight of, of, of you, Glenn. Right. Yeah, he, he was a, a big guy. Um, and so he tripped backwards while handcuffed in the back his hands were behind his back handcuffed uh, he fell back on his on his hands rolled backward his feet went completely all the way up in the air his head hit the ground hit the sidewalk um, so, and he traveled a considerable amount of distance so you know that that in itself I thought was, was you know a terrible fall you can't even ca- catch yourself you know to, and then after that it didn't end they um, grabbed him by his feet dragged him back toward the car on his feet. They didn't care if his arms were getting, you know, scuffed up on the on the concrete. 
there was something on the ground and the officer bent down to pick up and that was their claim that that uh, Mr. Curry had had some type of CDS but when they charged him there was no CDS in evidence there was you know they didn't recover anything they didn't bring anything back so it was all made up um, so they tried to use that to to prosecute Mr. Curry I knew even back then I know even more now that once you come out with a story it's okay. Once you come out with the story, um, the police department, the state attorney's office, the city, they're going to come very hard with their side of the story. So what was your calculus? Like, what were you saying, Wayne? Were you saying, hey, I think this is the public needs to see this or explain it? Yeah. So the pers- the perspective of the police, I knew it was going to be they were going to get in the news and they're going to get in there fast and they're going to give their side of the story. They're going to try. We were already getting calls for the video because I think they wanted to confiscate the original, <laughs> you know, at the time. So once I heard that, I was like, okay, this video needs to get out to the public before they try to confiscate it and and, and destroy it. And that's It kind of sounded like they were going in that direction. I'm not saying that that was going to happen, but, you know, once we started getting those calls and, 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 and they wanted the original, I said, oh, we need to get the, the, the original. We need to get the video out. We need to get the still shots out um, prior to any of that happening. I got a call from a police source, and he said, you have to call this attorney. He has a tape, and in the tape, you can see a police officer striking this man who's in handcuffs. And the way it was explained to me by this police officer, it was it's an absolute non-starter to hit someone while they're in handcuffs. So this was a controversial tape, and I got a call from Granville Templeton, uh, and he said, yeah, I got a tape, and he said, I will show it to you. And I said, you know, well, let me just ask you, I mean, will you let us have kind of an exclusive on this if I get my editors to commit to it? And he said, yes. So I remember leaving the office and walking over to Granville's offices, which were just around the corner in front of the courthouse. And I went up on the 10th floor and we sat there and I watched the tape and I was stunned. Because from what I saw as a reporter, it was clear that Mr. Curry was in handcuffs and that the officer reached over, punched him, but not just punched him in the head so hard that his hat went flying off, but also threw him back onto the ground, all the while in handcuffs, which struck me as really uh, violent behavior. And, you know, it was clear that Mr. Curry could not defend himself. So I thought it was a story. There was much debate in the newsroom about what to do with the story. I think at that point, police had so much power in Baltimore that there was always this sort of, if we go down this path, what's going to happen to us? And, and not that meaning they were going to arrest us, although we'll get to that because that did in fact happen. But that, you know, there, there was such this idea that crime was such a problem and police were the only thing between us and this criminal problem and the only, they were the only people that could solve it, that when you brought these stories in, there was a high level of scrutiny and a high level of skepticism of the people of the city. And it was something I had to fight it as, as a reporter. And, you know, one of the things I always had to do from the beginning was check the criminal record of the person who was assaulted or arrested or whatever, which has nothing to do with the arrest itself. But, but the problem is, is that the police department would use that against the person if you wrote the story. And so, you know, I had to fight for the story. But I think 
the video did have an impact because when I had brought in stories before and editors were like, well, how do you know this happened? But I had the video. We watched it over and over again. And finally, everyone agreed, okay, you can't, he's definitely in handcuffs. You can't hit him. You can't throw him to the ground. Uh, you know, and this is wrong. And, and the editors went ahead with it and not only went ahead with it, but we took stills from the video and put it on the front page of the paper so that the entire paper was dominated by the stills of this officer uh, punching Mr. Curry and then throwing him to the ground. So the examiner published a story with the photographs of the beating on the front page and the fallout was immediate. So we get a call, we're in the newsroom and you know, the story just blew up. We had all sorts of requests from other TV stations to look at the video or to get a copy of the video. We, we gave a copy of the video to our partner, WJZ. But then we get a call from the police spokesperson uh, who is quite upset, screaming at me and then calls my editor and says, you know, well, that's great. You just wrote about a career criminal because Mr. Curry has an arrest record of 40 arrests. And I had checked his arrest record. He didn't have any arrests, maybe, you know, one arrest that had been um, null pros, which means dismissed. And he insisted that he was going to tell all the media that Glenn Curry had an arrest record. And this was just and this is how they did this with people who had complained about police brutality, been a victim of it. Now, the video was very powerful, and I think they pushed back really hard because that video got picked up by all the TV stations, and for the first time, you saw the power of the video because it was very hard to argue against it. It's very hard to say, yes, an officer should be able to strike someone in handcuffs. So what they went for is they pulled from the old rhetorical playbook that police departments, that Baltimore Police Department specifically has always done, which is to attack the person ad hominem, to, you know, say they've got an arrest record. And that became quite controversial because if you looked up Mr. Curry's name and age and birth date, the way in, in the database it's called Maryland Judiciary Case Search, all reporters do it, there was only one arrest. But what the police spokesman was claiming was that there was a um, alias for Mr. Curry. And it was very tense because my editor said, oh, good job. You just wrote a, an article about a, about a criminal. And now you've got us all over. The papers are all over and, and you're really screwing us. And, and so the controversy was sort of pushed into the state's attorney because no one really trusted the police department at this point. And the state's attorney made a statement saying that Mr. Curry, no, he did not have this arrest record. He only had one arrest. And so fortunately, you know, for for us, they set the record straight. Now, that wasn't the end of their involvement in the story. But at that moment, I felt at least people will look at this for what it is and they won't be distracted by the police department rhetoric. We set the stage, I think, with the story the way we wanted to, the correct way, the way it really happened. And everything that we thought was going to happen did happen. You know, they said that there was the controlled dangerous substance, right. the drugs there. They said that they tried to do the same thing they do, they still do today. They tried to look at Glenn, your record, you know, and try right. to put that out there. Right. They tried to discredit the victim. And I think that's the, the main thing that, you know, people are tired of that. Why discredit the victim? If someone did something wrong and if, if an officer did something wrong, let's, you know, let's face that head on and try to deal with that issue and not try to discredit the person that was hurt. But the problems didn't end with the media attention and the dispute over Glenn's record. 
But for Fred Curry, the payback was swift. It was like a few months later after that, I was just getting off of work. And like I say, I'm I'm from around that Sandtown, Winchester, Murphy Homes area. That's like where I was born and raised at. So I was getting off of work, still had my city uniform on. Um, I was sitting on the steps with my homeboys. And I mean, it's a drug area, it's a high drug area. But I'm from around there, so I mean, it's it, to other people it's abnormal. To me, this is normal, you know. What I mean? But I'm working. I work for the city, you know. What I mean, I got a criminal record and all that, but I work. So I'm sitting on the steps with my my friends, like, um, and the police hit the block, like 20 police. They hit the block because the guys was hustling at the top of the block. We were sitting at the bottom of the block on Riggs Avenue. And they grabbed everybody on the block. Like they didn't like single me out. They grabbed everybody from the top to the bottom. And they started searching everybody. Started searching everybody and they took everybody ID. So bands though I'm at the bottom of the block, I'm like one of the last ones that they get to to search and with my ID. So when they got me up against the police car, one of the police said, oh, you Freddie Curry. It dawned, it registered on him that I was the one that made the video. So I said, yeah, I'm Freddie Curry. He said, oh, okay, you know what I mean? So he whispered to other police. So at the top of the block, I see, I seen them, they picked up something from some steps, like on the, up, on the opposite side of the street at the top of the block. So I see them whisper, so they start letting people go. They had like 20 of them. They start letting people go. So when they get to me, <laughs> kept the handcuffs on. So I said, man, I know you're not going to give me no charge. He said, no, we wasn't, but you're going to get one now. I was like, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. And sure enough, they gave me a drug charge, a conspiracy charge for some drugs. They found a half a block up the street on the opposite side of the street. How did you feel when they told you? I was stunned. I was stunned, but you know what I mean? It was kind of calm because it was like, you know, here we go again. So I was I was, I was, was stunned. And then, I mean, I was, I was stunned because I, I actually, I had just came home. But I was home for, I don't even remember. I think I was home for like a year. Yeah. I was home for like a year. So I was like, man, here we go again, man. Graham, what did they, what did they say in the charges? What did they, what did they charge him with? Yeah, it was another CD S possession conspiracy. Conspiracy and um, right, come to distribute right CDS because I had like seven hundred dollars on. I had like seven hundred dollars cash on me. They wanted to make it look like you were the right. ringleader. That I was right. That I, that the guys on the block was working for me. Yeah, that's what they tried to portray. Did you have any doubt in your mind that it was retaliation? Absolutely. He let me know that from <laughs> he put the handcuffs on me. He said it. He's like. Oh, you Freddie Carr, you the one made the video. A, like I said, it was a whole bunch. It was like 20 police. So we just one of them that recognized my name. And it's like, oh, yeah, you want to be the video guy. <laughs> Something to that effect. Remember what happened? Did you get a call from Freddie uh, about what happened? How did you find out about that he'd been arrested? Yeah, I got a call, I believe, from the family that mm -hmm. you got arrested. And then once you told me the story, um... We do his retaliation at that point. And once we realized that he wasn't even in the vicinity of the drugs, he was down the block and they had no evidence that connected him with it. 
um, we knew that it had it was retaliation. So you're sitting in jail. What are you thinking? Um, I'm 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 done for a few years because I had I was on parole. I just got home. I was home for about a year and some months. What were you on parole for? I was on parole for a drug charge and a robbery charge when I was a teenager. So I was locked up for a long time. So I caught that charge when I was a teenager. And I came home when I was in my 30s. I, I knew I was going to get parole violated. I, any any kind of interaction with the police is automatic parole violation. So, and as soon as I got locked up, they violated my parole, right? But the good thing about that is that my parole agent, somebody in the parole board, um, they saw through the bull crap. Because they was like, we're not going to violate you for this we're gonna wait for the outcome of the case which is kind of unheard of when you looked at their evidence what did you think i thought it was bogus i thought that they would drop the charges at some point and we already stated that we were going to go the distance no matter what. It was like 20 or 30 capsules, right? I mean, it wasn't like a huge... Was it 30? What did they say uh, it was? I don't even think. But it, it, was, it was like 22. I think 20. it was 22 pills or something uh, like Was that. it heroin or crack? I can't remember. Cocaine. Cocaine. 20, yeah. 20 pills. Yeah, so something like that. It wasn't like he was sitting on, you know, Al Pacino kind of stash. No, it wasn't. <laughs> he didn't have <laughs> it bricks. Like, it was like, <laughs> it was like 20 capsules. Yeah. Um, and how did the trial go? I mean, let me ask you as a lawyer, you th- I thought it went pretty well for you. Yeah, it, it went pretty well. Um, the first trial, um, I think we beat up on them a lot. Right. Um, my jury was okay. I think I think it was jury selection issues on the second trial. So we got a hung jury in the first trial. Or, yeah. First what was trial, the strategy we said you beat up on them? Uh, yeah, I think that the dots didn't connect. Right. And know. then the police got on. He lied. Then they like, like they caught him in a lie. Cause what lie? Tell me. Cause remember, remember they asked the police, um, did he know who I was prior to them making the arrest? And one of them said, yeah. And then the one of them said, I never heard of Freddie Carey um, un- <laughs> until this incident. Like, yeah, so part of the defense was that this was retaliation, and right. that they knew who you were, and that the only reason this case got this far with such little evidence was because of the other case. Um, they obviously they tried to keep out as much as they could of that evidence, and the judge kept out a lot of it. You right. know, they didn't but one of them, one of them did get on the stand. Like mm-hmm. he, 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 I mean, he had to admit. You know, what I mean, yeah, I knew about the incident and this and that. I remember that. And, right, you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But at prior, I think the first trial they said no. And then the second trial, I guess they like, let it in. They, yeah, they let it in, and he had to get on the stand and say, "Yeah, I knew." So I'm like, y'all knew this all along. What I was saying the whole time. So we had disputes as to, uh, I mean, even better in the second trial as to, yeah, you said something differently in the first trial <laughs> than right. this trial. So uh, yeah, so no officer testified um, that that Freddie had possession. I guess that's the term. He didn't have possession of any controlled dangerous substance. He didn't give it to anyone. He didn't um, direct anyone. There was no evidence that he directed because you can direct someone to do something, to, to pick right. up something and take it down the street. There was no evidence of any any of that evidence put in the, in, in the record in that trial. Right. I think the only evidence that they seen me talking to the guy C. And I, the, the officer actually said, said going to my trial, he seen me pull up in my car. 
and he seen me sit on the steps. Cause I remember I had a flu that day and I was sick. I ain't had a flu, I was sick. And I had a, um, a juice in my hand. Cause my mama said he smacked the juice out my hand. I was like, why you do that? You know what I mean? He told me get up against the car. So I was like, man, I, I, I had a flu. I was coming down with a cold or something. And he smacked the juice out of my hand, told me get on get on sit on sit on sit on the ground. But it, it it did seem like the prosecution put a lot of more effort into a minor drug thing than they normally would, right? Because oh, of the publicity. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They 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 wanted they wanted Freddie. Yeah. You know. I mean this kind of a case should have been dropped long time ago. They really, really wanted him. So the prosecutors were working with the corrupt police. Oh yes. They were working together. Yeah, they they were working as a team. They wanted to make sure that he was convicted. They were going to try this case over and over again. So if we get another hung jury, they're going to try it again. They spent a lot of time, effort, and money on a petty case. Damn, but when you sit back and think about it, it wasn't funny I, at the time. Yeah, it wasn't funny at the time because they gave me ten years no parole for that. Yeah. How did you feel when you heard that verdict? In the I was court? stunned. I was, I was shocked. I was like, are you kidding me? Because like I say, I just did 15 years. So I know what 10 years no parole means. That means every bit of eight and a half years straight. How did and you it was a mandatory, right, mandatory, mandatory sentence. Right. So why was it mandatory? Uh, your record? It was, my second, it was my second drug conviction. And I think it was my third felony at the time. And these so, are things you did when you were really young, right, too. Right, right, right. Um, so, so, yeah. So what we did, though, is we used a technique, and I'm not going to get all the way into that, to to get him out. And I think we got you out within, what, 18, 18 months? 18 months, right. The judge, the judge, well, I mean, after the second trial, I mean, he had to do his job because the jury spoke. And I was saying this earlier. I mean, I, I understand the law because, you know, I've been on both sides of it. The jury spoke, so the judge had to, he had to sentence me. Whether he liked it or not, he had to issue in a sentence. And he gave me 10 years, no parole. And they was asking for like 20 or 25 or something like that. And he was like, nah, I, I'm not. You know, he knew it was some bull, some some BS. So, um, but he had to give me, he had to give me a sentence. And then he was like, 18 months, come back, I'll modify the sentence. And that's what he did. Yes. So and he was at the Court of Special Appeals when he did it. Yeah, we, we use the health up. article. We use the health article um, to file a motion. Um, and and so. Did, did you, uh, when you were sitting in jail, did you regret that you'd made that video? Um, I'm not going to say uh, I, I, I regretted that. I, I just regretted there was so much publicity behind it because then I became a mark. You know, I became a mock person, and it, it went beyond the police because I never really hung out in the streets like that anyway. So I ain't have interaction with the police like that. So I became a mock mock man in the state's the prosecution, in the state's yeah. attorney's office. So it was like any indiscretion, and you get arrested, we coming to you with the full extent of the law. And I was told that on numerous occasions by Granville, like I say, my family, Sam, he's a lawyer, you know what I mean? So he's friends with state's attorneys and stuff too. So he's like, man, use a mock man. And this is a playbook, common playbook, right? Yes, 
Yeah, it's common. So the retaliation, the um, the retaliation is is real here in in Baltimore City and probably in other urban areas. Um, And the police and the state's attorney's office, they do work closely with each other on a day-to-day basis. So um, the the police knew that you were on the hit list. Right. You know, so when you're in the street, they know your name. If they find you, they're going to arrest you for anything. And the state's attorney's office, um, they're going to prosecute you to the fullest extent. That means even if it's, you know, you know they know it's jaywalking or something low right. like that, they're going to go they, ahead and move forward with it. And they're going to keep retrying your case if you get a hung jury over and over and over again until they get you. And the result that they were looking for and, and someone in the state's attorney's office back then told me was they wanted you to spend a substantial amount of time in jail. Absolutely. A substantial amount of time. And I was told that. And it's ironic now. Like I say, this is 12 years ago. One of the state's attorneys, I'm not going to mention their name, but it's a friend of mine now. They're a lawyer, private attorney. But it was a state's attorney in my case. You know what I mean? And over the years, we became friends. And told me, like, yeah, we were out to get you. You were public enemy number one. And I was like, wow. <laughs> how, how has your life been since you've been out? Well, I mean, since I've been out, um, I caught a couple more, I caught a couple more cases. Um, some of them personal, some of them wasn't. Um, but overall, I, I was acquitted. And I work back. I'm back with the city. I'm doing all right for myself. I don't do no complaining. I don't. I don't hold no grudges. You know what I mean? Not all cops bad. Like some of my closest friends, childhood friends, police, male and female. You know, I'm talking about childhood friends. Is your life? You know, is it okay now? I mean, you feel yeah, 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 yeah. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't hold no grudges. I'm, I'm good. What do you think when you see these videos now, like a Freddie Gray video or a video of a cop beating someone? I just, I just find it funny. I mean, I don't, uh, not that the, the incident itself. That you know, what I mean, people are doing something now that was like taboo when I did it like 12 years ago. Like he, he made a video of the police. Like it's, it's prevalent now. Like it. It would be taboo if you don't do it now. And Grandma, how do you think it's changed since you know since you first dealt with that video? How have, have has anything changed? Just the perception, I think, in the community, it's changed. Um, like Freddie said, it's normal now to video it. It's normal to see these things, and, and I think it's good that the that the general public can see. Right. What happens in some of these neighborhoods right. in Pennsylvania country, Avenue? Yeah. You know, Pennsylvania Mosier. You know, mm-hmm. they. A lot of people don't get to see that. They don't go in those neighborhoods and they don't understand. And I think it's it's changing the, the conversation and, and it's, it's moving the needle because now we're realizing that a lot of the police police officers are not from Baltimore. They're from Pennsylvania. They, they live in Pennsylvania. They live Delaware. way outside of the city. And so the connection that they have with the residents there, you know, is minimal. And right. they're really afraid of those communities. And that's why sometimes the fear is um is met with violence what would you need to feel like you were it was worth it for you or that you were made whole what would you want for yourself personally um, an apology um i mean I, i'm i'm young maybe my uncle glenn you know what i mean because yeah. he was assaulted you know what i mean me you know what i mean i 
I, I, I take it with a grain of salt. It was, it was, it was, and and where I come from, it was, it was preordained for this to happen, for me to go through what I went through to make me a better person than I am. So, like I say, I don't hold no grudges. It, it is what it is. I moved on. I don't, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I got a good job, <laughs> a good family. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm fine. You know what I mean? I just would like to see. Um, better, 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 better policing, and you know what I mean. More of those um, community programs that they've doing that I participated in when I first came home. Um, more of that, more of that kind of stuff uh, in the community. The recent Justice Department report found that, among other issues, that the police department retaliated against people who criticized it which in a sense showed that Fred Curry and Glenn Curry were right all along. I think the whole case sent a message uh, to everyone to beware and to be careful about how you speak about the Baltimore police and show the power they had, the power to, you know, criminalize someone or to, you know, take away their agency or the ability to criticize a public institution. I think it was a very strong message, and I think anybody who thought about taping police at that point would probably think twice about it. But in the end, the struggle to bring attention to the problem with policing in Baltimore was worth it, even if it was a few years too early. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation and our series Through the Lens. We'd like to thank our guests, Glenn Curry, Fred Curry, and Attorney Granville Templeton. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast, and if you enjoy it, leave us a review on iTunes. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Taya Graham, Stephen Janis, and Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Productions. Our show is engineered by Sienna Greaves. Please join us for our next installment in our Through the Lens series, where we will continue to explore how the public criticism and critical media coverage was answered by police. And thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation.